And if uh, you have your Bible, please turn with me to our sermon text. Again, we're going to 1 Samuel for a little while. So we're going to start this morning in chapter 1. This is a great story. This whole uh, book of 1 and 2 Samuel is a great story of God's kingdom being built in Israel, which teaches us how God builds his kingdom even today through Jesus. You can find this on page 211 of the Pew Bible. And some of you kids can begin to break in your brand new Bible by turning with us. Let me read starting in verse 1. And I will skip a few verses in chapter 2. It's a long reading, but I'll skip a few verses. You can pay attention to when I do. There was a certain man of uh, Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathrite. I did not say that right, but you know, you'll forgive me. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you indeed will look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And said, uh, Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the Lord God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. 
And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due course, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah flower, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as I live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. Because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And now verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of the earth is the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard his feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. Have you ever made a goal that you found out was a little too big for you? A little beyond you? I know we've all done that. If I've done it once, I've done it a dozen times. Maybe one of those times somebody came up to you and said this wonderful phrase. Well, you know, Rome was not built in a day. Don't you love that cliche? It's a good one. Rome was not built in a day. Don't be impatient. Don't give up. Big things take a long time usually to develop. And that is true, right? Even though it's a cliche, it's very true. Rome was not built in a day. And neither is anything that is worth building, usually built quickly. Well, that's true about us because we lack the skill and the ability to build things fast. But I want to show you this morning that it's also true about God. Not because he can't build things immediately, but because he chooses to take his time to build things even when he doesn't have to. Because God, you see, is working alongside of us and in us. And so he patiently unfolds his plan step by step, year by year. The books of First and Second Samuel are all about how God builds, how he builds his kingdom in Israel through the king, especially through King David. But it's pointing to something greater. God is building his worldwide kingdom through Jesus Christ. How does he do it? Slowly 
and he starts where you least expect it. Look down at your passage again that we just read. Where does God start when he's trying to build his kingdom in Israel? He starts with a woman crying in Shiloh. Let's think about that this morning. If you look at your bulletin, we're going to ask three questions about Hannah, this woman with whom God begins the kingdom. Why is she crying, first of all? Secondly, how does she respond in her sadness? And lastly, how does God act for her and ultimately for his kingdom? First of all, why is Hannah crying? If you look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, you see it. Uh, the writer here is unfolding to us a sad story of a covenant family. Uh, this was a covenant family. The man's name was Elkanah. His ancestors are listed there in verse 1. But the thing about him is we don't know anything else about him besides this. And the people that are being listed in his family, we know nothing about them either. This is a very ordinary family in the nation of Israel. They live in the hill country. So you might call them hillbillies, right in the middle of the nation of Israel, a place where almost nothing important happened. And yet here, this family was a family of deep faithfulness. We read about how Elkanah took his family regularly to the temple to worship. He prayed with them. He taught them to pray. He taught them how to offer sacrifices. We're going to see Hannah doing the very same thing, even in her sadness. They, this family knows how to be faithful to the little things. And yet they're nothing to write home about. They are pretty much just ordinary, simple folks. Within their family, there's a very deep sadness that is beginning to take over. That sadness, of course, comes from two things. It comes first from Hannah's own childlessness. Now, even today, to be a, a woman unable to bear children or to be a man who's unable to have children can be a very heartbreaking thing, can it? Very heartbreaking. But you have to imagine for a moment a different time than ours because it was heartbreaking for an even greater reason. In this time, it was considered to be really the main job, the main identity of the woman was to rear children and raise them in the household. And so Hannah, even though she was the first wife married to this great man, Elkanah, this very faithful man, yet because she had no children, you can imagine she not only was heartbroken over the lack of little feet running around, she was heartbroken because probably she didn't think her life had purpose. She was wrong, of course, but she didn't know that. She thought her life was purposeless. She wondered maybe whether God had forgotten her altogether, which is why later she prays, God, don't forget me. Do you ever feel forgotten by God? Do you ever wonder whether your life has purpose or meaning? Well, Hannah is a kindred spirit. Add on to that a double sadness. Because uh, Elkanah has done what many men did at that time, he took a second wife, probably because his first wife could not have children. And so he adds a second wife to the family. Now, I don't want to spend the whole sermon talking about polygamy, but I do need to say something about it. 
Just because the Bible says folks did it doesn't mean you should do it. Can I get an amen there? Right, there are many things in the Bible that the Bible reports about that it doesn't endorse. In fact, we're told in Genesis 1 or chapter 2 that God made one single man to leave his father and mother to join to one single woman and the two, not the three or the four or the five, are to become one flesh. God's design for marriage is one man, one woman together for life. Not many. But the thing is, uh, these people are people of their time just as we are. Like I'm sure there are ways we're messing up right now that we're not even aware of because we're just people of our time. They were. It was common for a man, especially if he had some money, some means, to add more wives to his family so that he could have more children. It was sort of a status symbol. And in this case, it was probably, in his mind, a necessity because his first wife, whom he loved, could not have children. Now, again, just because the Bible says it doesn't mean you should do it. In almost every example of polygamy in the Bible, it shows you why you shouldn't do it. By example, and you can clearly see it here, right? Penaniah treats Hannah as a rival. That word is used, a rival. And it says, year after year, when they went up to the temple to that big feast to worship God, maybe it was the Passover, maybe it was the Feast of Booths, they went to worship and to feast as a family. Every year, Penaniah made it a point to remind Hannah that she was childless. And oh yeah, by the way, the Lord closed your womb. Can you imagine those conversations? Probably they happened in private. Hannah, God doesn't love you. Hannah, God loves me more. Hannah, you may have won Elkanah's heart. Maybe he loves you more than me, but apparently God loves me more than you. I'm better than you. What have you done wrong, Hannah? Why does your life have so little meaning? Do you really even deserve to be here? I mean, you can imagine the, the dialogue and how that rubbing the nose into her pain would make her pain even worse. Y'all, I can't think of another example in the Bible of greater weakness than Hannah in this position. She's weak because she is suffering a double pain. Childlessness thinking that she might actually be forgotten by God and a rival sister wife to remind her of the fact. Wow. And yet I want you to observe right here in the first chapter something wonderful about God. This is my one of my favorite things about God. In all of his attributes, that is everything that's true about God, every one of them, is holy. Hannah at the end in chapter 2 verse 2 will say, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. What do I mean by that? So think about his power. God is powerful. This story shows it. After all, God is presented as the one who opens the womb and closes the womb. God has everything in his hands. He does it all. He, he, is, he is the one who orders all things one way or the other, either by permitting it or by actively seeking it. God is the king. 
And yet, in his power, he is holy. Meaning, no one else wields power the way God does. Because here is the almighty God wielding power by drawing near to a weak woman in her weakness. When God sets about to build his kingdom in the world, he chooses a woman who not only feels aimless, who not only is weeping and not eating because of her pain, but is also being ostracized by somebody else. God does not look the other way. God draws near to her using his great power to help her. There is no God like our God. Most people, when they get a little bit of power, what do they do with it? Use it for their own personal advantage and only their advantage. Isn't that right? I don't normally draw just straight moral lessons from stories like this because I don't want you to think that the Bible is just a moral tale just to help you be a better boy or girl. It's more than that. It's about a savior. But here I'll give you a simple moral lesson. Do not be like Penaniah. That's a simple moral lesson. Do not be like Penaniah. She had just an itty bitty bit of power and what did she do with it? <clears throat> she found the weakness in Hannah and she drove the knife in. She used it to get advantage over her and she did it repeatedly. This is what we call abuse. A steady, unending pattern of behavior that hurts somebody. She's doing that because she has a little bit of leverage over Hannah because she has children and Hannah doesn't. God could not be more opposite than Penaniah. The God of all power never abuses his power. He doesn't do like you and I. When we're weak, when we see other people around us who are weak, we want to do everything we can to avoid contact with the weakness, don't we? In fact, we are in a culture now that has almost a, it's a whole industry of helping people avoid weakness at all costs. People pay big bucks to not be weak. It's amazing. And yet in scripture, the Bible says when we face weakness, which we will, and the pain begins to rise, we ought not to act as if we are atheists. You may be here today, and you, and you might be never in your life have you ever said, I am an atheist. And yet, I would contend that many times we live like practical atheists when we experience weakness of our own. We think, I'm weak. That must mean God's not there. That must mean God does not care. Maybe, maybe there's not God. And even if we don't think it, we operate as if God can't do anything about my weakness. He can do nothing about it. I'm alone to fend for myself. And so I'll throw my resources at it, but I'm not going to get any help from above. Practical atheism. Or when we see weakness in others, we pull a Penaniah. We avoid that person because we don't want to be burdened with their burdens. Or we poke at that person to try to feel better about ourselves or maybe we even take advantage of that person because we see the vulnerability of their weakness all of these things are exactly polar opposite of God 
And what a reminder Penaniah is that people can be attending the worship of God publicly while inside a cruel, mean spirit dwells. And I want to challenge you with that this morning. If we serve a God who loves to draw near to the weak, who loves to begin his kingdom building in the most unlikely place, to draw near and come alongside a weeping woman who is brokenhearted and not eating, then we should not live as if there is no God when we fall into weakness. And we should not avoid or take advantage of others when they fall into weakness. We should seek to imitate our God. And come alongside. God, Hannah will later say, looks upon the lowly and raises them up from the ash heap. That's chapter 2, verse 8. How do we look upon ourselves when we're weak? How do we look upon others when they are weak? That's the first thing. Why Hannah was weeping. But secondly, I want you to see how she responds in her sadness. Look at... Uh, chapter 1, verse 9, and you'll see it. It says, after they had eaten and drunk, that is everybody else, because remember Hannah was not eating. This was a big old party after the worship service. They were having a great meal together. And Hannah abstained because of her sadness. But it says, when the meal was done, she rose. And she went back to the house of God to present her case before the Lord in prayer. Now that word for rise is also a... Hebrew idiom for putting your foot down. Literally, it says, Hannah put her foot down and went to pray. Hannah was determined that her answer, her comfort, was going to be found in God. Now think about it. Elkanah, he's a dear man. In fact, he is presented in this passage very positively. I don't think we should... Uh, read too much negativity into Elkanah. But if you look at verse 8, where Elkanah tries to comfort um, Hannah, you might be excused for thinking what I thought when I first read it. What an insensitive dude. <laughs> Hannah, why are you crying? He knows. Uh, why do you not eat? He knows. Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Hannah, you got me, babe. <laughs> Right? You got this. Why do you need kids? You got this. That's one way to read it. And maybe that is the way Elkanah was. But I highly doubt it. Elkanah, after all, was a man of faith. It tells us that he made it a point to teach his whole family how to worship. How to humble themselves before God. How to pray. In fact, Hannah's prayer really probably is just a outgrowth of the whole family's habit of prayer and so I think you could read it a little more charitably Elkanah may be saying more like Alan Jackson did in his song living on love <laughs> honey I know we don't have kids we don't have all that stuff but we're living on love I still love you I still want you I, I know that you still love me we're together in this it's okay you don't need kids for me to love you I think that's probably more what he meant but nevertheless, don't you know, Hannah still had to put her foot down and go to God? Because there are some problems no man or woman can solve. 
There's some issues that no one's words can satisfy except God's words. I mean, we, I mean it's just a simple arithmetic, Elkanah. One husband does not equal ten sons. That doesn't make mathematical sense. And really, isn't it true, even one husband does not even equal one son. Because a husband is not a son and a son is not a husband. She wanted a son. And so she put her foot down and went to the Lord. And the story almost goes in slow motion as it shows us what she did. She did something amazing. She came, it says, and saw Eli at the temple of the priest. She was deeply distressed, verse 10, and she prayed to the Lord. She wept as she prayed. I mean, she is visibly moved as she pours her heart out to God. That's what she calls prayer, by the way. I, I was pouring out my heart. What a picture that is. All the contents of my heart are being spilled out where God can see them and smell them and take notice of them. And then it says, verse 11, she vowed a vow. What a precious thing that is. We had a vow just a moment ago right here in front of us, a church membership vow. And the Bible gives us many examples like this one. Vows are a part of worship. It's something we all do from time to time and should do. Making a personal covenant commitment with God. Now notice what Hannah says in the vow. She says, if God, you do this, then I will do that. That's what a vow is. It's committing to do what God calls you to do more closely, more carefully, if God will do what you need him to do so you can do that thing. Now, be careful. Uh, a vow is not a bargain, or a deal that you strike with God. God, if you will give me a Corvette, I'll go to church every week. <laughs> That's not the kind of thing we're talking about. Notice Hannah's vow. You don't want to cheapen vows. Hannah's vow is very, very solemn. God, if you will look on me, if you'll remember me, and you won't forget me, if you'll give to your servant a son, then I will give him back to you forever. Wow. It's not a bargain. She cannot keep her end unless God keeps his end first. She has no son to give. God must give the son for her to give the son back. What she's doing is she's saying, God, I'm going to be absolutely careful to do my part. And I swear it to you. I vow it before you. If you will only look at me and do what only you can do. My husband cannot comfort me in this. My husband cannot give me a son. But, oh, God, you can. You're the one who opens the womb and closes the womb. Oh, God, stretch out your hand. And I will be faithful with what you give me. Hannah was so moved by this. And you can imagine the scene that Eli begins to notice her. Now, with Elkanah, I said we don't need to be too negative. With Eli, you can't be more negative. You can't be negative enough. And we're going to see more about Eli next week. And it gets worse and worse with Eli. He's just not a very with it kind of guy. He's not the kind of guy you want leading Anybody, let alone the church. He looks and sees this woman crying and praying, and it says that her lips were moving, moving but she wasn't speaking out loud. This is just a woman pouring her heart out to God, and what does Eli say? 
Well, the only thing I can think of is, well, she must be drunk. I mean, go figure. Here's a woman praying and crying in church. The only thing I can think of is she must be drunk. That's sad. Is it not? That's sad. On, it doesn't make sense. It's sad on a lot of levels. It's sad for Eli that he's not observant enough to know where he's at and to see. I mean, it's not like, you know, Hannah was turning cartwheels. She was praying. Isn't that what you're supposed to do when you come to the house of the Lord? Sad for Eli because Eli just wasn't very spiritually perceptive. But it's also sad for Eli's own family because we're going to learn next week that Eli's own sons were doing the very thing he thought Hannah was doing. They were actually doing right under his nose. They were taking advantage of people. They were drinking and defiling God's house with their own drunkenness and out-of-hand disobedience. In fact, Hannah says here, don't call me a worthless woman, verse 16. Well, that same word is used in the next chapter to describe Eli's sons. God calls them worthless men because they're the ones that came to church not to pray. Hannah's actually there to pray. How sad for Eli's family. Eli's family is the opposite of Hannah's family. It's sad also for Israel. You might not know the chronology of this, but you've got to get this timetable in your mind. Samuel lived at the same time, roughly, that Samson lived. Right? You know the story of Samson? Uh, when God sent an angel to Samson's parents to say, hey, you're going to have a baby, he's going to be strong and save Israel, how did they respond? Did they, did they do good things in response? No. In fact, it's like they've never heard of the Lord before. <laughs> they're completely thrown off. They don't know God at all. In fact, Samson was born in a time when most Israelites were not very faithful to God. And so this story, this, this one family of Elkanah and Hannah might have been one of the very few families in Israel that still showed up at church and that still actually had a heart for the Lord in their life. And so how sad it is that when Eli actually sees something, somebody in church praying, he thinks, well, they have to be drunk because I can't think of anybody who would do this. And yet this gives us, I think, y'all, a great window into another aspect of how God works to build his kingdom. Not only does God tend to work through weakness and weak people, but God also tends to work through simple acts of faithfulness by simple people. In school, kids, when you learn history, who do you learn about? George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, right? Frederick Douglass, big names who did big things. You don't learn about a certain man who lived in the hills, do you? Because most of the world considers ordinary folks to be little people who mean very little in the course of history. 
But listen to this. Our God, when he writes his history book, highlights the simple faithfulness of the so-called little people. Because in God's eyes, there are no little people. Every person is made in the image of God. Every person is offered everlasting life and salvation through Jesus. What dignity, what worth, what potential. And God here wants to show you when my people pray, when my people come to worship, when my people observe family faith and they they pray together as a family and read the scriptures and cultivate just a family that is faithful to the Lord, there I am building my kingdom. Don't look to the palaces. Don't look to the battlefields. Look to the homes. Look to the individual hearts. How backwards is that from the way we normally think? It may be that you're discouraged today because you think God has not given you a great thing to do. It may be that you think he'll never give you a great thing to do. Let me tell you, he has already given you a great thing to do. In fact, the greatest thing to do. Because he has given you the capacity to worship and pursue him with all your heart. And if you're someone who has kids, he's even given you the responsibility to raise them to do it, too. And that is what really changes world history. If I have not told you, if you didn't know anything about this story and I just came in and said, hey guys, today we're going to start a story about how God built his kingdom in Israel. You might think, all right, chapter one, where's the ripped guy with the long hair riding on the horse with the sword? Where's the blood? God takes us to a family bowing in prayer to show us where it starts? Huh? Huh? And yet that is exactly what the Bible says. God works through the prayers of his people in private, the prayers of his people in public, the prayers of his people in families. I wonder, what foundation are you laying for your family? What great work do you have in your own personal life? Maybe you don't have kids, but you still have your own personal life. What what are you building in your life as a habit? And is it such a habit that God might be prone to do great things through it? Or not? That's the second thing. Now lastly, let's look at what God does for Hannah, and then eventually for his kingdom. In chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to really the end of the reading, in chapter 2, it says that because Hannah rose up for God, God rose up for Hannah. Hannah put her foot down and went to pray. God heard, God saw, and then God put his foot down and acted. 
It says in verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped God one more time and went back to their home in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord stood up for Hannah. The Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The name Samuel sounds like the name God heard. It sounds like the phrase, God heard me. I am heard of God. And then it says in a few years' time, once the child had been weaned off of dependence on his mother, uh, Hannah took the young boy back to the temple and dedicated him for lifelong service to God. Get this. She lent him to the Lord, it says twice in verse 28. She lent him back. Because that's what she vowed to do. Now think about this. Even though, who's in charge of the temple? That doofus, right? <laughs> Who thought she was drunk because she was praying. This reminds you of something, reminds me of something. Our commitment to the Lord ought not to be dependent on men or women. Even in times and places when the church or the family or any arena of life is run by wicked people or incompetent people, that should not affect your own personal commitment to God. She went through with her vow. She gave her son. She knew she was not lending her son to Eli. She was lending her son to the Lord. And what a great man he became. In fact, what we're seeing here is actually a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the name Christ actually appears in our passage today. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus' name, the name Christ, appears. As Hannah gives thanks to God for Samuel, she says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. In other words, what I have done now with my son in offering him to the temple and to God is the beginning of what God's going to do for the whole world. Well, what's God going to do for the whole world? It says he's going to judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king. Now, you've got to remember, there is no king yet. Israel doesn't have a king. So she's truly seeing something future here. The Lord will give strength to his king. And then it says he will exalt the horn, which is a way of saying he will strengthen the hand of his Christ. That's what that word is. Messiah, Mashiach. He will strengthen the arm of the Messiah, of the Christ. What God did for Hannah and what Hannah in turn did in return to God as, as she had vowed is a picture of the gospel. The Bible tells us we are all in weakness, barrenness, heartbrokenness, misery because of our sin. And yet in the barrenness of this world, what happened? Unto us a child was born. Unto us a son 
was given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And all the ends of the earth will look to him and will live. The giving of Samuel is like the giving of Jesus Christ. God heard us in our misery and in our sin. And he stood up for us before we could stand up for ourselves. And he gives us the greatest gift of all, a son, a child, so that we can then turn around and lend all that we have back to God for his service. The gospel is God does for us everything so that we receive all the blessing and can then in turn give our everything back to him. And y'all, that is why God starts by working in weakness and why he starts with simple people doing simple, faithful things. Because the power is of God, not of us. Because the true world-transforming power is the gift of Jesus the Son to the human heart, which then motivates the person to say, I am yours, God. My children, yeah, they're yours too. All that I am lent back to the Lord. In fact, this is cool. If you're a word nerd like me, the name Samuel doesn't just sound like heard of God. It also sounds like the phrase lent to God. There's a word play here. The writer intentionally is playing on words. Samuel is the boy who was given by God because God heard his people. And Samuel is the boy who was lent back to the Lord to be a part of God's kingdom building. And so every Christian, God has heard you. Christ Jesus is the answer to your weeping. Christ Jesus is the answer to your lack. He's the answer to your hopelessness. He's the answer to your sin. He's the answer to your misery. He has heard you. But this is also true of you as a Christian. You are lent back to God. You belong to him now. Whatever gifts he has given you, you've got to use them for him. He means to build his kingdom by simple people like us. Right? And oh, what God might do through someone who is simply lended to him. We're going to see in the coming weeks what God will do through a person lent to God. Samuel will do some awesome things. David after him will do some awesome things. And I'm going to tell you, you too. You who have received the son, the child born, you too can do awesome things that the world might not care about, but God smiles when we keep our vow because he has kept his.